0: You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey, everybody. It's Pete here. Welcome, normal people, faithful listeners, unfaithful listeners. I don't care who you are. Welcome here. Hey, listen. Here is our my solo podcast without uh, Jared's adult supervision. I promise not to break anything, but today's topic is five things Jesus wants you to know about the story of Adam. I know because he told me so. Actually, I have no idea what Jesus thinks, but that's above my pay grade. But these are five things that I think are important to keep in mind as we read the Adam story, if we want to read it well. That's the way I like to put it. Not perfectly, but if we would like to read it well and be in tune to sort of the clues the writer is giving us there.
1: Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief.
2: You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and She said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused and it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com, promo code normal people, that's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com, promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com, promo code
0: normal people. And I've got five things, and I think just to start off here, uh, rather a preliminary point, but I, I know that uh, this can be an issue of tension for some people, and I fully respect that. Uh, you know, I've made peace with this a long time ago, but I know uh, many haven't, and I just respect where people are on this uh, spiritually and intellectually and all that sort of stuff. But just a food for thought here, a bit of a morsel for thought, Uh This is not the first time the church has had to think through the matter of biblical interpretation, what stories mean, in light of changes in our knowledge about, let's say, the physical world. And, you know, the big one is Galileo, and whether the earth is at the center of the cosmos, or whether the sun is, and the sun is, and in fact the cosmos is much bigger than we uh, might have understood beforehand. It doesn't sort of stop, it just sort of keeps going. Um, you know, the Bible doesn't think that way about the earth or about the cosmos. There is a you know, a dome overhead that keeps the waters of chaos away and allows habitable life to to, to occur in the sky and in the seas and uh, you know, on, on the earth, on the land. And that that's how Genesis tells a story. But we've had to come to peace with the fact that Genesis is clearly not telling us about how things actually happened. It's telling us something. The question is what is it telling us? Which we won't get into here, Genesis one. All I mean is that we've we've had we've already had practice doing this doesn't mean, you know, science tells you what the Bible thinks or whatever. Science tells you how to interpret the Bible. Not that, but there there are things the Bible talks about that leave historical footprints, testable footprints, that, you know, we need to take seriously when we see some of these footprints to sort of engage the Bible with this world of science or human knowledge, whatever we want to call it, and, uh, you know, not make um, rash judgments, I would say, about you know, what the Bible means, no matter what anybody tells us. Okay? You know, I think, in other words, we've had practice on that. And I think it's important when we come to Genesis chapter 2 and the Adam story, because there's a lot at stake there for people, especially this idea of sin, of course, and what it means to be human, and even the whole purpose of Jesus' coming. And we'll get to that. Okay, that's, that's, that's one of the... Uh, uh, that we're going to look at, but we're going to leave that for the end. Um, the, the five issues, let's get to these five issues, shall we? Five issues that I think are important for framing the story of Adam and, and understanding it in a way that I think makes sense in terms of Genesis as a whole and maybe the Bible as a whole, and maybe even in terms of what an ancient author was trying to tell us, was trying to communicate. And the first point that I'd like to draw out is that uh, the Adam story looks an awful lot like the story of Israel. And uh, as I say that, I'm not making this up. Uh, This is found in a medieval commentary, a medieval Jewish commentary. about 500 roughly around that time, 500 A.D., uh, called Genesis Rabbah. And that, this analogy is made that I found very helpful that actually cleared up a lot for me. And I'd like to, I guess, share it with you as well. Um, think of the story of Adam not as the story of how humans came to be. Maybe Genesis 1 takes care of that, right? Think of Genesis chapter 2, the Adam story, as Israel in this story of Israel, maybe the the, the beginning of the narrowing of the focus of the Bible to what the biblical writers are really interested about, which is them as the people of God, the Israelites, and what God wants of them and how they're to act and all that. The Adam story seems to be a preview of coming attractions, almost like a table of contents for what the rest of the Old Testament is going to do. And here's what I mean. Adam was created out of the dust of the earth and then transported to a lush land, the Garden of Eden, and he's given a command to follow, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you obey, things will go well. If you disobey, what does God say in chapter 2? He says, on the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And as you continue reading the story, which we'll get to in a second, but you continue reading, and Adam's disobedience doesn't actually result in his physical death, it results in him being driven out, he and Eve, being driven out of the garden into, let's call it a place of exile. Right, They're driven out of the land. Now think about the story of Israel. Israel begins in earnest as a people out of the dust of Egyptian slavery. They're brought out of that. That's when their national story begins. They're brought out of the dust of slavery, and God transports them where? Well, into the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, sort of a paradise kind of place, where God also dwells, and this is his land, and the people are allowed to live in it with him, just like Adam in the garden, and God's presence is there. And they're given commands to follow, the law of Moses, the Torah, the covenant. And if you keep that covenant, you will stay in the land, and if you disobey, what happens? Well, you get exiled. This is the story of Israel. In a nutshell, disobedience leads to exile. Now, an interesting little twist here, which I think for me just solidifies it even further. Uh, Exile, metaphorically in the Old Testament, is a place of death, and being in the land is a place of life. And you can see that in Deuteronomy. We won't read any of these passages. We don't have time. But, you know, if you look in Deuteronomy chapter 30, like the second half, obedience means you stay in the land, which is life. Disobedience means exile, which is death. Not physical life versus physical death, but metaphorical life. Life in God's presence. Life in harmony with God and with each other. Outside of the land is a place of death. The wilderness or going to Babylonian captivity. So, I, again, for me, this, this, this helps me understand why, in the Adam story, being exiled fulfills what God said a chapter earlier, on the day you eat of it, you shall die. Yeah, you're dying by going out of the land, out of exile. You're in the death place that brings only death. So, that's, you know, again, to me, that's, that's like a really interesting thing to say about the Adam and Eve story. And if that's true, guess what? or if that's even half true, or if that's if there's even a hint of this being true, it sort of dulls the issue a little bit. It takes the edge off of thinking of the Adam story is the story of how God created humanity physically and literally, and this is how it happened. It may be, in the intention of the author, a metaphor. Imagine that, something of highly symbolic value and this is not the only time in the Bible you get symbols, right? So the, the beginning of the story of a story of Israel begins with a symbolic story of Israel's entire history with Adam and Eve. Okay? How do you like them apples? Pardon the pun. Ha ha. Anyway, okay, that's the first one, Adam and Eve. The second one is looking at the story of uh, Adam and Eve, especially now with the forbidden fruit and the serpent, looking at that story as a story of, Of wisdom rather than. Well, let's leave that. Let me just sort of explain what I mean by looking at it as a story of wisdom. Well, first of all, you have the serpent. The serpent uh, is more crafty than any creature the Lord God had made. Crafty. Okay, well, what does crafty mean? Well, I don't know, but in the previous verse, the last verse of chapter 2, remember there are no verse and chapter numbers. In the Bible originally, we inserted those to help us find things in the medieval period. Christians do that. Uh, So you go from the end of chapter 2 right to chapter 3, and next to each other you have two verses that use the same Hebrew root. In the end of chapter 2, Adam and Eve were naked, but they weren't ashamed. Naked and crafty are from the same root. So there's something going on there. The, the biblical writers are subtle and, 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 and sophisticated, and and this is for adult reading, meaning it, it takes attention to, to, to sort of grasp what's going on here. But nakedness of Adam and Eve, and they weren't ashamed. And now you have this crafty serpent. Okay, where is this going? Well, just think about this for a second. What happens at the... A little, a little bit later in chapter 3... They eat of the forbidden fruit, and right away, they notice that they are naked, and now they're ashamed. Hmm. They have some bit of knowledge that they didn't have before. The analogy that I use that I think is helpful is, think of... uh, you know, a small child like, you know, my son or somebody who, you know, when he was two years old or whatever, he would run around the house naked, meaning outside, around the house, he just didn't care. Or kids at the beach, you know, they just are naked. Well, what if, you know, take a kid at the beach, you give this kid at the age of two, I don't know, magic lollipop or a piece of fruit or something that instantly gives them adult knowledge and understanding and wisdom. In other words, they see that they're naked what will that kid do? Well scream, run into the ocean, do something to hide the nakedness? Because nakedness is a shameful thing as an adult, but as a naive child, you don't think about it. See, Adam and Eve are like naive children who are like naked on a beach. They just don't care because they're not aware enough of why you would even feel shame. Right? So they were naked, and the serpent is crafty. You see, the serpent, what the serpent has done is he has tricked this naive, childlike Eve into partaking of something she's not ready for. He gave her that magic lollipop or that magic fruit, whatever you want to call it, you know, the analogy with the child. And she grew up too quickly, and Adam grew up too quickly. See, something that always struck me as curious about this story is, you know, God says to Adam, eat anything you want. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat. On the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, if I'm writing this story, and I think any parent can hear, can connect with this, um, I'm going to tell these people: okay, listen, every day make sure you take a good, healthy dose of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because you need to have the knowledge of good and evil, right? You need to know what's right and what's wrong. Do not eat from the tree of lust. Don't eat from the tree of greed. Don't eat from the tree of slander. Don't eat from the tree of murder. Definitely eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, the question is, why this Why this tree? What does this symbolize? Well, it symbolizes a good thing. Actually, it symbolizes the goal, but they have to get there the right way. They can't there, get there quickly. They have to be trained. They have to mature into that understanding and knowledge. It's like telling a child, don't touch the stove. Are stoves bad? No, stoves are awesome. You get to bake all sorts of things inside of them and cook things on top of them. It's great. But not for you, not now. You have to be trained to a point where you can um, handle this well and safely and wisely. And a matter of speaking, folks, I don't think this is an overstatement. The whole point the whole point, folks, of the Old Testament is to give the people the knowledge of good and evil. To give the Israelites a knowledge of good and evil. Where do they get that knowledge from? Well, they get it from things like Proverbs, where there's wisdom literature, and you get it from Torah. The whole point... Now, here's where I'm going to put this now. The whole point of this is to grow these people, to mature them, to reflect God to the world around them. See, the goal... Of Israel's story is actually to be like God. In the New Testament, you know, we would say, you know, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect in love. Be perfect in obedience. You know, not not morally perfect, never make a mistake, but basically you're you're reaching a goal of of, um, God-likeness, which is, I think, one way of talking about the point of the gospel for all humans, and here you have it in the Old Testament. The point of Israel's journey is to reflect the nature of God to each other and to the world around them. That's a good thing. See, that's why the serpent, what he tells Eve is, is a half-truth, typical, right? The half-truth is um, you, uh, the reason why God doesn't want you to do this is because you will be like him, and he doesn't want that. Oh No, that's not true. He does want that but at a different time in a different way, not just by grabbing for it. It would be like the two-year-old saying, to heck with this, I'm going to go play with a stove, and I'm going to make myself spaghetti sauce, and then they get burned. Right. So you have to be ready, and you have to grow into the knowledge of good and evil, which is to say the knowledge of God. Um, Let's bring this word crafty and naked back into this picture here. Um, I bring this up because in the book of Proverbs in chapter 1 verse 4, one of the purposes for gaining wisdom, one of the purposes for reading this book of Proverbs is that uh, you will be um, uh, uh, shrewd. Shrewdness is one of the things that is is, uh, the, the, the benefit of studying Proverbs and studying wisdom. Uh, the word shrewdness in Proverbs one four is, it's the same root that you find in Genesis for the crafty serpent and for the nakedness. See, the serpent is crafty. Uh, the, I like to use the word street smarts or the phrase street smarts. The serpent has street smarts. And one thing that wisdom tells you is that you will have street smarts too. You won't be You won't have the wool pulled over your eyes by people. You'll know what's up, right? You're not going to be taken in by a card game on a street corner when you enter a new city, right? You're not going to buy that used car without uh, knowing when you're being taken advantage of, right? See, Eve's problem is that she was being taken advantage of by somebody who had craftiness, who had wisdom, that she did not have. Why? Because she is essentially an infant, She has not matured to the point. See, I guess, what's the payoff for this? I'd put it this way. The payoff for this is that Adam and Eve are not sort of these perfect creatures without a stain on them and no cracks or flaws. And now they take a bite and all of a sudden they sort of fall off the mantle and they crack. That's a common way, I think, for Christians to think about this story. Here you have perfection for about three seconds, and then you sort of fall from that. Well, you don't have perfection. You have infancy and immaturity, and the point is to grow, but grow the right way, which is essentially in obedience to God. See, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. wisdom that's Proverbs. Well, fear of the Lord means basically reverent obedience to God right? That's the way you reach maturity by submitting yourself in a childlike way. Think of Jesus. He talks about this too. Submitting yourself in a childlike way to the Father. And we see that being played out in the Adam and Eve story as well. So it's not so much a fall into a hopeless state of brokenness that we can never recover from. In fact, the Old Testament assumes the opposite. It assumes that you actually can obey you can move forward. You need to, and you can, you need to discover wisdom on the way. And then you will more and more reflect the image of God around you. Okay? So, the first is Adam and Israel, a sort of parallel. The second is think of this in the context of a wisdom story and how that might make sense of certain specifics that go on there. Um, not the beginning of why bad things happen or why people are sinful. The Bible doesn't actually explain that believe it or not. The Bible doesn't explain why we're sinful. Uh, It just sort of takes it as a given. Uh, This is why in Judaism they talk about the evil inclination of humanity. Not the cause of it, but just the evil inclination. We'll get back to that in a second. Okay. The third point that I think is really important to, uh, to keep in mind is that Adam is not a pivotal character in the Old Testament. Indirectly. Right, If Adam sort of represents Israel's uh, disobedience and then, let's say, fall into exile in Babylon, if that story of Israel is reflected already in the, um, in the story of Adam and Eve, then in a sense, Adam is all over the Old Testament. And maybe when you watch Israel's behaviors, you're supposed to think about, my goodness gracious, it's, it's this Adam story all over again. And I think that's, that's not only fine, but probably good, and maybe even what the writer intended. Did you know
2: Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30 day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever.
1: We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just called them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do, like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact (laughs) instruction level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process.
2: This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp.
1: You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week, and I was trying to reflect on why that was, and it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital, and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that, and it's been coming out in all these wonky ways, and that's exactly what therapy can help with.
2: That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy, and I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me.
1: So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com/bnp today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp slash bnp
0: But Adam is a character. The way he's taken usually in Christian thinking, Adam as a character simply doesn't turn up anywhere in the Old Testament once you get outside of Genesis chapter 5. That's the last time Adam is mentioned. It, well, except for one, that's worth pointing out which one this is. But uh, the only other mention of Adam is in what in Judaism is the last book of the Old Testament, First and Second Chronicles. He makes an appearance in this book uh, that was written, you know, probably like in the, even in the fourth century, uh, and uh, it's it's a retelling of Israel's entire story, its long story. From the beginning, see a lot of people. Re- you know, you, you read First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, which tells the story of Israel and David and all the kings, and that's a long read. It takes a while to get through that. Maybe not the most exciting thing. And then you get to First and Second Chronicles, and you say, "Well, I just read this. So I'm not going to read it again." Well, the thing is that First and Second Chronicles isn't saying the same thing again. It's it's writing to a different audience. These uh, late. Post exilic Judahites who have been back in their land for maybe a couple of hundred years and they have a temple and everything's okay, but things aren't quite right because the Persians are in charge and the Greeks are coming soon and we don't have a king on the throne and where is God when you need him and what happens to the Davidic monarchy and all this kind of stuff. And it's a time of discouragement. And what first and second chronicles is as boring as it is maybe to us especially starting with nine chapters of names for heaven's sake as boring as that might be for us for them it was theologically powerful because at a time of discouragement they're being told god is still with you god has not abandoned you despite what things look like remain humble remain obedient follow God, Uh, don't lose heart, because your pedigree goes way, way back. See, you're not in a good place right now, but who you are goes back further than um, maybe the time of the exile and that generation and how they caused this mess. It goes back further than David. It goes back further than than you know Joshua or Moses or Joseph or, or Jacob or Isaac or Abraham, it goes way way back to the beginning of your story, Israel. Your story begins with Adam, the first person mentioned in the Bible. This is your legacy. God has not abandoned that legacy. Now I'm throwing that in for free here, a little sidestep into Chronicles to to you know explain why Chronicles even mentions Adam. He mentions Adam theologically for, uh, for for the purpose of basically giving the people a pep talk sermon, which is really a very long sermon that begins with names, but it's, it's nevertheless it's a, it's a pep talk and a reinvigoration of confidence that you are actually the people of God. Did the author of First Chronicles think Adam was a person or just a metaphor? Um, good question. It doesn't matter to me one way or the other. If the author of Chronicles thought that Adam was a real person, I would just say, well, I don't, of course he does. Uh, and, and not because he's wrong, but because he's an ancient person. I expect him to think like a Jew living in, let's say, the fourth century. I don't, th- that's not a matter of judgment. That's not arrogance on my part. It's just pointing out the antiquity of this. On the other hand, we don't really know that the author of Chronicles thought of Adam as a person or not. Either way, right? We still have the job here, living, you know, twenty five hundred years later, of thinking through the significance of these stories from the point of view of changes and advancements and movements in human knowledge and scientific knowledge. Right? Again, we can't escape that responsibility. We can't go back to a verse in First Chronicles to sort of take this discussion off the table, regardless of how you read it. Right? Now, there is one other alleged mention of Adam, which I'll just point out. It's in Hosea 6. uh, Why don't I have the Bible memorized? I think it's verse 7. Hosea 6, 7, where Adam is mentioned, but there Adam is mentioned as a place. And the Hebrew, I think, is is really crystal clear about this. Uh, Adam there is, uh, it says like, at Adam, a geographical location, there was a, a transgression of the covenant and it would be nice for some, you know, if Adam there was a person, because you have a person and transgressing a covenant, and that makes sense of a lot of Christian theology of Adam. But it, it doesn't say that. Adam is a place name. There are a bunch of place names mentioned there in that portion of Hosea, and Adam is one of them. We actually know of Adam as a place from the book of Joshua, chapter 3, verse 16. So that, that Adam is a place name. Now, you might ask, well, okay, what happened at Adam, this transgression of the covenant? Well, we have no idea, because the biblical writers talk about things that they assume as common knowledge, but that might not be explained anyplace else in the Bible. See, that doesn't bother me, affect me one way or the other. The point is that Adam in Hosea is not a person, it's a place. And so, here's the point. If Adam is such a crucial figure... If it's so important to get this Adam right, why is Adam not mentioned? Why is Adam not a prominent figure? Actually, this, this piggybacks nicely onto uh, the next point, the fourth point, which is this idea of sin in the Garden of Eden story. And the, the idea that sin and sinfulness is now downloaded onto humanity by birth that's simply not in the Genesis story, or anywhere in the Old Testament, right? And and you'd think that if that were the case, uh, you'd hear about it, you know, occasionally in in the Old Testament. You would hear things like the Cain and Abel story, right? Cain, why'd you kill Abel? Well, because you were born in a state of sinfulness. Way to go, Adam! Right? Read the story. It doesn't say that. It's it's almost a parallel of chapter 2 and 3, where Cain relives Adam's experience, and even God tells him, listen, I know what you're thinking. Don't do it. You can resist this. You don't have to follow in your dad's footsteps. Doesn't say, well, there you go. You're sinful, and you have no choice, and you're wicked, and you have no chance to do anything good to please God. Of course you do. The whole Old Testament turns on the idea that you can actually please God, and you have the power to do it. You can obey the law. You just have to do it. You're not hopelessly lost. Right? I really want to drive that point home because I know so much is at stake in Christian theology and reading Adam a certain way, but you don't find that. right? He's not a prominent figure and he's not the cause of human sinfulness. right? You have these um, punishments and curses that are meted out in Genesis right, to the serpent, Right. His punishment is that he's going to crawl on his belly and eat dust. How does that work? I thought serpents didn't have arms or legs. You know, whatever. <laughs> maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. Who knows? Sort of a mystery. Uh, or maybe it's just metaphorical language for submissiveness. Right? There'll be um, animosity, enmity between your offspring and the woman's offspring, and again, that could be highly symbolic. I don't want to get sort of sidetracked on that, but you know that those are the punishments there. Uh, with Eve, the punishment is basically, it's going to really hurt to have kids. Pangs in childbirth. Um, although, you know what, can I throw this in for free, just because I feel like it and it's my podcast? Uh, you know, I've read in, 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 in more than one place Where the Hebrew there, pangs in childbirth, could be, you can justify this translation, could be translated not as pangs in childbirth, but as sorrowful conceptions. And the reason I like that is because it makes sense of what we read in Genesis when it comes to kids. Um, We can think of examples of sorrowful conceptions. Sarah, barren, right? Rachel, a lot of trouble, barren until the end, you know, and that results in a lot of sorrow, a lot of, a lot of tensions between, you know, Rachel and the other three women, or between Sarah and Hagar, it results in sadness, I mean, remember, you know, Genesis 1, be fruitful, multiply, awesome, okay, that's still going to hold, but there's going to be sorrow in your conceptions now, um, and think of the tensions between brothers who were born, Cain and Abel. See, right away, that's part of the point of the Cain and Abel story, I think. It's an, it's the first example of sorrowful conceptions. Here they are, and one of them kills the other. See, having children is not supposed to be like this. Having children is supposed to be blessed and joyful and fulfilling God's command to fill the earth and to be fruitful. But now it's just conceiving children is difficult, not just painful, but also... It is a source of sorrow, not just joy. Right? But the point is that there's nothing in that punishment either that has to do with sin. And then you get to Adam. And of course, what is Adam's punishment? Well, a couple things. One is that Adam, Hebrew Adam, um, will be in a sort of a hostile relationship to the ground from which he was taken. And the Hebrew word for ground is Adamah. So, Adam won't get along with what he was taken from, his life force, so to speak. He was taken from the ground, but the ground is not going to be cooperative. It's like he's not home. He's estranged. He's disoriented. You know, By the sweat of his brow, he's going to try to coax the ground to give him food to eat. You can think the ideal is that you, know, you won't have these problems of growing crops. You won't have famines. You won't have any of that stuff, but you do. By the sweat of your brow, you will, will survive. You're going to have a hard life because you're disengaged from the force from which you were taken, the ground. And that peace will not be restored to you until, well, until you die. Until you return to the ground from uh, from where you were taken. And, right? Well, I mean, not, not and, but there are these two issues. Hard life and then you die. So the crowning punishment of this sad story in Genesis 3 is death, which we talked about before, becomes for Israel exile. That's you, that that's it. You're gonna have a hard time in the land and then you're gonna leave. Yeah. What's missing in this story is what I think Christians typically presume, and this comes from Augustine, who lived around 400, and he's the one who really gave the Christian Church the theology of the original sin, where it's sort of like downloaded through sex. Right? It's this is not a biblical concept by any means, you know, in in any way, shape, or form, but that is missing. That very thing that we think is central to the story is missing. There's nothing there. It's not hinted at. It's not implied. It's not stated. It's not behind the scenes. If you look in the right place, it's not there. The notion that, and now Adam and Eve, every child you have will be born in a state of sinfulness, even if they don't do anything. They will be born as objects of wrath, simply by the fact that they're Born that they're human, and I will turn my back on them. You—they are worms. They are—they—they are—you know, just not worth my time. And my disposition to them is fundamentally one of anger and wrath. Folks, that's a really hard thing to read into this story, right? God loves Israel. God gets mad at Israel sometimes. You know, pretty violent. But the—the the bottom line is that. This is the apple of God's eye, and God brings them back from exile eventually. And the ability to keep the law, see, this is it. It's, it's presumed throughout the entire Old Testament that Israel can actually keep the law. right? Deuteronomy 30, It's this is right in front of you. It's not far away. It's not up in the heavens where you have to bring it down. It's not across the ocean you have to send somebody out to bring it to you. It's right here in front of you. You can do this. In fact, I'm, I command you to do this. Right? It's not that they are incapable of pleasing God. Pleasing God is what they're supposed to do. In the Old Testament, it's called righteousness. Righteousness is an act of obedience or goodness or kindness or justice to other people and towards God. That that is what Israel is supposed to do. Forgive me for driving this point home, right? But the notion that what we do and all the problems of this world can be traced back to the first human is not a biblical concept. No way. Here's what is a biblical concept. We sin. We, and I, I like the Jewish way of, of, of saying it. We have the evil inclination. Uh, that language comes from the Noah story, by the way. Um, the inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time, at the beginning of chapter 6 of Genesis. Uh, th- that is what Jews pick up on and say, listen, this is part of the human uh, drama. This is part of what it means to be human. We do have an evil inclination. And I take that very seriously. I don't deny that for a minute. I just have to be left alone with myself in the evening when my mind starts racing to know, (laughs) you know, the inclinations of how I think about others and how I look down on people and all that kind of stuff, right? I don't deny that for a minute. I'm not saying we don't need Jesus. I'm just saying the Bible does not explain where this comes from or why we are the way we are. It's just a given. Adam is not to blame. Which runs us to our fifth point, Um, and and why what I just said can be so difficult, I think, to accept. And I understand. I get it. But the issue is Paul. See, if if Paul did not make such a big deal out of Adam, in Romans chapter 5 especially, verses uh, 12 to 21, if he didn't make such a big deal out of Adam, we probably wouldn't be having this podcast. We wouldn't need to. I know plenty of Christians who don't think, who think the serpent, I mean conservative Christians, who think the serpent was probably something metaphorical, or who think that these trees of life and of of the knowledge of good and evil, that these trees were something symbolic, right? I know Christians who have no problem with that, and they still take these stories very seriously, and they're not afraid of God getting mad at them for saying that. But when it comes to Adam, all bets are off. Adam has to be taken as a concrete human being, a historical figure, maybe not absolutely the first person, but the first person of any consequence. And the reason why is because of how Paul engages the Adam story in Romans chapter 5. In a nutshell, here's how it goes. Paul says, Paul draws an analogy between Jesus and Adam which is a beautiful and theologically powerful analogy. Adam disobeyed the whole fruit thing and as a result sin and death. Jesus obeyed as a result life and righteousness. And the reasoning goes, and I understand the reasoning, it's not ridiculous by any means. It's 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 understandable to come to this conclusion, perhaps. But for Jesus for his, for what his obedience meant, and by the way, Paul means the one act of obedience which is to the cross. He doesn't mean Jesus like kept every article of Torah or something. That's not that's not on Paul's agenda. That actually undermines his argument about law is not central to you know, the Christian faith, whatever. But, uh, you know, Paul, Paul says that Jesus' act of obedience rectifies something that Adam's act of disobedience did. And I and I get the power of that analogy and how we might be tempted, I'm using that language intentionally, how we might be tempted to think, I don't care what science says. I don't care what Pete's first four points are. I have to follow what Paul says here. and And Paul says... You know, Paul clearly implies that Adam is a person. The analogy doesn't work if he wasn't, because Jesus is a person. What, what would Jesus have to undo if it didn't actually happen in history? Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life, and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago, and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose, and it's just my throat hurts, and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin-D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin-D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a
2: discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different.
1: There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path.
2: You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential online and hybrid.
1: You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People.
2: It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu.
0: And I want to just a couple things I want to say to that. I understand the compelling nature of that analogy, but I don't accept it because we have these other four points what we looked at, number one. Number two, um, when I wrote this book, The Evolution of Adam, I wrote it from the point of view assuming that uh, Paul thought that Adam was the first person. And I did that intentionally because that's sort of what I thought at the time. But I also thought that was the worst scenario. It'd be nice if Paul thought Adam was metaphorical. We wouldn't be having this discussion. But let's assume the worst. Let's assume that Paul thought of Adam as the actual first human being. And I wrote the book saying, okay, based on that, how do we solve this potential problem? And so I give you 200 pages or whatever. But let me say now, I want to be very clear about this. We actually have no way of knowing whether Paul thought Adam was a person or whether he was treating Adam as that story we know from way back when. We actually don't know one way or the other. And I've read plenty of people who, um, you know, James Dunn, no evangelical, by the way, but, uh, you know, no no crazy person who hates God either, uh, you know, who say, you know, it wouldn't surprise me at all that Paul understood that this was a story of metaphorical value, and not necessarily thinking this has to be the first person, right? So, yeah, you know, I, th- I think those are things to at least to toss about. But more important, which is a huge issue, we will not get into here. This this is you know several podcasts, but how Paul uses the Old Testament in general is usually very creative, and the Adam story in particular, you know. Paul isn't telling us what Genesis means and the Adam story means. He's actually part of a Jewish world, which already has a history of engaging the Adam story rather creatively for all sorts of diverse reasons. And again, if you want to look at the evolution of Adam, I have a few pages on that. Uh, I'd also really recommend um, the recent book, at least when I'm recording this, uh, the recent book that came out a few months ago uh, by Scott McKnight and Dennis Venema. Dennis Venom as a geneticist, and Scott's, of course, a New Testament scholar. But um, Scott unpacks that for more than just a couple of pages, but a bunch of pages, of how Paul's understanding of Adam is really highly interpretive and creative and part of the Jewish world that he lives in. So in other words, if you know something about Paul and the world that he lives in and how other people are treating the Adam story— and uh, you know how Paul, in general, is very Jewish in his handling of his scripture, very creatively. Um, you'll read this use of the Adam story, and you'll say to yourself, "Oh, well, he's doing it again. He's being creative. He's being uh, just just as uh, you know his fellow Jews have been doing for generations. Paul's doing it again." So, I think it's part of the problem with engaging, let's say, evolution. And uh and, and Genesis chapter two and Paul and all that sort of stuff is because of the assumptions that we make of these authors. And I think the historically speaking, the much safer assumption to make, in fact, I think it's a slam dunk if you ask me, but the safer assumption to make about Paul is that Paul was interpreting the Bible creatively and not so much giving you what the author meant to say in Genesis, but giving you a particular angle on it to suit his the purposes of his argument in whatever letter he's talking about. In Romans, for example, again, this is collapsing things we could talk about for many episodes, but you know, if if the point of Romans, if one of the points at least, is to show that Jesus is there for both Jews and Gentiles equally, they both have the same problem. The problem is universal. See the problem is not that Jews don't keep Torah. And the solution is for them to keep Torah better. The problem is so big that you need Jesus to fix it. The problem is deep and it affects all of humanity. The problem is actually um, death that came from the sin of Adam, right? That that sort of introduces death. I think that's the way Paul thinks about it. And our own deaths, you know, we're responsible for that in a sense too. Romans five twelve because, you know, we sin right and and all this is on our shoulders, our responsibility too. So Paul is bringing together the let's say the culpability, the guilt, the responsibility to both Jews and Gentiles on an equal basis. they are both in the same boat. there's no hierarchy of Greeks over Jews or Jews over Greeks. you're both the same in God's eyes in this sense, that you both die. See, the problem is so deep to humanity that God had to show up in a resurrected Savior to fix it. Crucial, right? I, I think that's, that, is, that is the point of the book of Romans. I mean, there are many ways of stating it, but that's one way of getting at the point of the book of Romans. And so Paul brings Adam into the discussion for illustrative purposes to drive home the point that, listen, folks, this is a human problem that Jesus is fixing. Remember the Adam story? Yeah, well, that's Jesus is undoing all that stuff. I, I, again, not to go too deeply into Romans, because that's not what this is about, but, uh, you know, Paul has been sort of making that same point for several chapters in Romans, and he doesn't actually need Adam to make the point that he's been making, that we're all sinful. We're all, we are all need Jesus. We all need a crucified and risen Savior in order to be complete and whole. And that goes for Jews and Gentiles together. So if he's telling a universal solution story, he's also going to bring into this a universal problem story. And he does that by taking the Adam story and handling it in a way that is, if I may say, unprecedented in its details. In the world in which Paul lived. There's, there's one text, and you can read this in my book or Scott's book, there's one text that seems very close to Paul, and it is, but even that is itself a creative handling of the text. Paul connects sin and death in such a way, and then, and then brings it to his readers that, you know, the author of Genesis, I'm going to say, didn't intend to do. That's not his purpose for writing the story, but it is Paul's purpose for using it. Okay, that's a mouthful. That's almost like three podcasts right there. Um, actually, that's a good idea, isn't it? Uh, we've uh, had at least one Pauline Scholar uh, on the podcast already. We're going to have another one soon, and we should probably have more and more to explain this pivotal figure to us. So thanks for the reminder, folks. Okay, anyway, that's it for today. Let me just sort of sum up quickly and then uh, you know, thank you and say goodbye. But we looked at these five points. Adam is Israel. Uh, look at it as a wisdom story. Remember, Adam is actually not a pivotal figure. He's not mentioned. Also, sin is not mentioned as a punishment. And Paul is not the trump card to get us to avoid all these problems. You know, Paul says Adam's a person. That's all there is to it. He might not be saying that. And Paul's a creative interpreter of the text. Right. And I think these are five things that, you know, if we keep in mind will help us uh, I think, read the story well in a way that is in keeping with the details of the text itself and in a way that shows it the respect that it deserves, and which is to say to understand it in the way that I think it was intended to be understood. That doesn't take away from human sinfulness. It doesn't take away from the need for a savior. But it does take away reading a story poorly in, in a way that actually doesn't do justice to it. Okay, folks, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, Before I sign off completely, first of all, I want to thank you for for being, uh, you know, downloaders and listeners of the podcast. Jared and I take it as a privilege. uh, We don't take it lightly that we get to invade your lives and talk about the things of God or of the Bible. And, uh, you know, it's a privilege for us, um, and and you're kind to us, to sort of be a part of that with us. Remember, I have a website, in case you didn't know, PeteNs.com, and you can find all sorts of stuff there. I mentioned The Evolution of Adam, one of the books that I wrote, and you can find information on that book on PeteNs.com, or thebiblefornormalpeople.com. Also, other books there that I've written, like uh, The Bible Tells Me So, or Inspiration and Incarnation, and a few others. Uh, But those two are probably more relevant to this topic of, of, like, what is the Bible, and reading it well, and that kind of thing. Um, Also, I want to invite you, if you haven't already, uh, to sign up for my newsletter, which I call my sort of monthly newsletter. Um, I hate getting a lot of mail, (laughs) although I do, and I promise not to send you a lot of mail either, but eh, about every four or five, six weeks, I try to send out a very brief newsletter. Basically, it's an email, it's one page. uh, Updating you on sort of what's going on, like my speaking schedule or things that I'm working on, especially now, I'm working on a book. And uh, just recently, my last newsletter um, sent, uh, sent out to several thousand people, sent out a portion of a draft of a chapter uh, to get feedback because I like you people and I really rely on uh, what you have to say and what you think. And that's part of all this is building an online community. So if you go to my website, you'll be able to go to one of those pages and you'll see a sign up there, a subscribe button. And again, it means a lot to me uh, if if you do that, because I use you as guinea pigs for my thinking and your feedback is great. Actually, I will say this, this current book, the direction it's taken has come directly out of feedback I solicited last year from you kind newsletter people. So You're helping me for that reason. Uh, you also find uh, information there about my speaking schedule, how to get uh, in contact with my speaking agent if you'd like me to come speak to your church or organization or whatever, Um, or not even like come speak to you, like pontificating, but hang out, have conversations, um, be parts of a panel or something. I actually it a great privilege to be a part of people's lives that way too, to see kindred spirits and to hang out with them and uh, again, to kick ideas back and forth as we all continue exploring uh, this faith that, that that binds us together. Uh, and the last part, and, and with this I'll stop. Uh, many of you know that Jared and I are creating uh, or facilitating, I guess, an online community through Patreon. And uh, if you go to uh, patreon.com, and one of the slashes, forward or backward, I forgot which way they go, but the Bible for normal people, and then um, it'll take you right to our page. But anyway, if, you know, supporting us to do what we want to do here for as little as a dollar a month, uh, will give you content that is not distributed outside of Patreon, uh, Q&A videos, I occasionally rant about something because it's mine and i can do it uh you know uh, we have uh book discussions you know, you can join a book discussion where right now we're looking at the prophetic imagination with uh, by, by walter brueggemann and you know by contributing at a certain level you can be a part of that book discussion and others to come uh, we have an online discussion community you use slack if you're familiar with that and all that's easily explained on uh on the website but, uh, you know, it, by by joining this, you help support us do something that we really like to do, but does take time. It takes equipment that we're working on, too, and, uh, you know, your support means a lot to us. We don't take that for granted, but I invite you, if you feel so inclined, to join us there and to be a part of this community, which is the whole reason for why the Bible for Normal People exists. It's not just to hear me talk or to hear Jared talk or write or this or that, but it's for you to have a community that you're a part of where you might not feel a part of things elsewhere and that's that was been you know even before i knew jared that was sort of my vision way 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 back to build something where i'm not the only one talking but that others are as well but now with with jared building the bible for normal people this is this is taking off and and you know we value your participation and presence with us Okay, folks, enough yakking on my part. Uh, Thank you again for being here, and uh, we will be with each other again in a little time with our next guest, whoever that
1: is. Okay, folks, thanks so much. See ya.